0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts.
1: At every step, it will be easier and easier to climb. and The higher your ascent, the more you will be cheered by the closer view of that heavenly city
2: every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today we're going back to the early 1700s in colonial america during the great awakening that's right it's a jonathan edwards sermon troy i feel like i can hear a bit (laughs) of rain on your side is it raining over there
0: it is which actually it's not supposed to it's in the middle of the dry season so it's kind of a little a little bit random that it's raining today Uh, Yeah, and when people, if you're not aware, I'm currently in Indonesia. So when I say dry season, it's like it literally is uh, three or four months without any rain. I kind of thought when I was, you know, before I lived in a place with rainy and dry seasons that it was like, okay, rainy season, it rains a lot. And dry season is like dry, but it doesn't, it rains, but not that much, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like Mm -hmm. in tropical places, I just imagine they always had rain because I grew up in Florida where it always has rain. No, something's hey, got to be like, making all those palm trees green, right? No, it'll literally. When we were in Cambodia, I mean, you would get maybe a single day of rain, uh, in the entire month. And I know for like a fact that it went like all of January and February without any rain, so it's kind of weird that we're getting rain today. Um, uh, but it's very nice because it's very, very humid. But you did yeah. not ask about you know, you're not here, you did not click on Jonathan Edwards to hear a sermon about heaven to hear about my rainy day. So let me tell you, you're here to hear about one of the most famous people in church history, Jonathan Edwards, talk about something that I'm actually really excited to talk about because Jonathan Edwards is not famous for his takes on heaven, right? Like Joel, you've heard of, mm-hmm. of course, the most famous sermon by him "Sinners in the hands of an angry God. We have and naturally covered that sermon. We've actually done Jonathan Edwards so many times. now; I don't even, I have lost track, not to mention Jonathan Edwards was featured on revived Evo as many times as well. Yeah, and all this time, I can honestly say I have not heard much about his description on heaven. And I'm very excited about this episode because I'm, I'm very, I'm just, I, I got a lot of passion. I worked hard on this sermon. Uh, it was a long one. It took me a very long time to edit it down. But I really like this sermon because I am excited to tell you that Jonathan Edwards brings as much passion and zeal to the topic of heaven that he does the topic of hell, which he's a mm-hmm. little bit more famous for. And I think this sermon on heaven will convict you and get you just as excited about the future and what happens after death as his sermons on hell uh, maybe terrify you in the reverse right. way.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's got that talent, that creative uh, ability to help help make it real in your imagination, right? And uh, we get to see this put into, put into heavenly terms for this episode. When I think of Jonathan Edwards, I think of the American uh, Great Revival, right? Edwards, born in 1703, he'd end up taking over his grandfather's church once he studied and, and became uh, equipped and educated enough to, to run it. And when it comes to American history, he's definitely recognized as one of our, uh, one of our more uh, famous, earlier, renowned theologians, right? He, he ended up writing a book about David Brainerd's life, who was a missionary to the Native Americans early on. And Jonathan Edwards' attitude towards missions ended up helping inspire the missionary movement of the 1800s. You know, when when a lot of people think about America in a global scale today, sending out lots of missionaries, uh, that all started with this movement that Jonathan Edwards helped start with this book and moving into the early 1800s. Hundreds. He did have a lot of controversy, as do as do a lot of the people that we have on this show. But um he was very again very harsh, very direct with his words, very unforgiving with the statements that he would make. Um his sermons were blamed for his uncle's suicide, which is a a, a rough thing to try to come and reckon with. Um, and I'm sure that's something that weighed on him and that he thought about a lot He was also kicked out of his church later in life He's got a lot there that we've jumped into on previous episodes uh, But we're not gonna dive too much into his personal life uh, In this episode like we have in previous episodes again Those are there if you want to go check them out highly recommended Troy What are we gonna talk about today though?
0: So today I wanted to look at kind of His role in the Great Awakening and really kind of take a look at the Great Awakening itself Uh, Because in some ways, it seems almost at odds with who he is, his legacy, especially his legacy today. So when you think of Jonathan Edwards, he was a very meticulous, scientifically precise person. He was very careful. He quite literally wrote the book on what a conversion experience is supposed to look like, like the methodology, if you could scientifically dissect a soul getting saved, and what the fruit of that life would look like. He wrote the book on what he thought that was supposed to look like from a scientific perspective. Yet as someone who, as uh, you know, me speaking, as someone who's edited a few of his sermons, he is methodical. I can tell you that. He, he will line up his points and line up his sub points and line up his sub, sub, sub points. And he knows what he's doing here. Yet this guy ends up leading this gigantically mass movement that is, without a doubt, a very emotionally passionate, You know, driven movement. People are bawling. They're crying out in the service for him to stop preaching. They are literally having physical reactions throughout the Great Awakening. And this seems really strange to me because Jonathan Edwards is a stark, you know, Calvinist. Even on our Twitter, sometimes posting quotes by Jonathan Edwards will get people mad at us and they'll, you know, they'll talk about how his vision of hell was too scary. He scared people too much or his Calvinism made him too stoic. And there's the very famous, um, idea that he preached his sermons very monotone like this which we've covered in episodes why we what we think about that go find them again just listen all our jonathan edwards ones they're pretty good Uh, but when you think of calvinism today it really doesn't make anyone think of someone you know with wild emotional outcries and revivals this is so opposite of what you think of right when you if you if you've met calvinists if you know them they don't tend to be people known for revivals and wild emotional outcries so what happened here? How did this very stoic, methodical, scientific person lead one of the most emotionally driven movements in history? And what do we think about that? Does that, in some ways, damage the reputation? What What, what do we do with this instance? Because it's very, um, it's very unexpected. Yeah, one of my favorite things about this era
2: of American history and really all of uh church history and in human history in general is just to see kind of the state of America right now. Uh, again, so I guess this is colonial America. This is pre independence. America was not, or I should say Christianity, Christianity was not flourishing during this time. Uh, it was a time where, you know, the, the Puritans had come and established. Uh, The colonies established this new world for their religious uh, country. But all of those Puritans are gone and dead at this point. There's several new generations that have um, popped up in the meantime. And Christianity is not something that they are caring about. I grew up in an era where, you know... All the adults around me were talking about America is no longer a Christian nation, or you know, we're we're abandoning our Christian values. We're we're falling by the wayside. And while I don't you know disagree with that, um, I do think it's interesting to note that that's not the this is this isn't the first time American has ebbed and flow as far as the population's um, commitment to Christianity. There are pockets throughout uh, this continent's history where we were very fervently as a collective body wanting to seek out the Lord and eras where we uh, had no intention of, of doing so. Um, and this era here in the early 1700s is one of those ones where Christianity, again, was not something that was flourishing or was growing. You know, adults would have been saying back then, you know, the older generation would have been saying, oh, colonial America is is no longer a Christian nation where it's, it's just the motions uh, you guys don't even care about Christ anymore. They would have been saying those same things back in this era uh, of American history. And I think it's, I don't, it's just as a side note, an interesting analysis of human history in general, because you, we see that time and time again throughout all of church history, fervent people that are excited about Christ. And then after a generation or two, uh, people become selfish. People find ways to justify and prioritize their own desires and, you know, following a Christ-like life and those lifestyles just don't mix up. And so Christianity falls by the wayside in those segments. Even back to, I mean, I think of like the book of Judges in the Bible, right? All of those chapters in with, you know, children of Israel doing what was right in their own eyes. And then God sends in the judge and gets everyone sorted out again. And then uh, there's that cycle.
0: Yeah, no, the I, Israelites are not known for holding that firm faith, right? Like they, the whole Old Testament is right. just follow God. All right, we'll follow God. Oh, what's that? No, follow God. Yeah.
2: Well, and again, I I think that's just humanity in general. We're just really forgetful people. We're really selfish people. It's something that's a part of our, our fallen world that, that we live in, I think. Uh, and it's something that we have to be intentional about combating, especially as we pass on the towards to following generations there. So while in this era of American history, I mean, people went to church, you know, it's not like there was no one going to church, but this is also in an era where there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no podcast. Where else do you go to see people in this era? Where do you go to hear news? Uh, Church was more like a social club than someplace that people would actually go to to grow closer to God. In 1662, there was something called the Halfway Covenant, and it was something that allowed non-believers to become full church members and it also meant that non-believers could fill the pulpit, you know, as as in a pastoral position at that time. So a lot of the times you even had just, again, the church was not so much a church as it was a social club that that people in the town would come and gather and catch up on. And, um, you know, and there sh- certainly was good things to say, but sometimes you you could have churches run and led by people that weren't even believers, almost like a community center type type of situation there that would be in that town. There's some quotes from the air. One person described it as, religion was in a very low state. Pastors generally dead and lifeless and the body of our people careless, carnal and secure. In Pennsylvania, there was another person that said, religion lay as it were dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. And you know, in, in retrospect, it makes sense when we think of the great revival of of the colonial america right you need to you can't have a revival if there's nothing that needs to be revived there's the condition has to be uh by definition of a revival uh, a place that needs a revival in
0: america certainly fit that bill at this time there's no great awakening if people aren't asleep right the reason we're taking this like painstaking time to put down this history for you is because it makes the great awakening even more surprising for starters it's a little sad you know the puritans came to america with this vision they're going to build this amazing country that loves and worships god about 60 years i mean they left they landed the 1620s 1630s especially uh here we are in the early 1700s a little bit about a century later and it's over right the puritans are gone their movement has put everyone to sleep, not their movement per se, but I'm just saying like what is left of it is over. It's people are unchristian leading the pulpit. Things are not good. And, and America looked like it was going to go down the same road that Europe was in. They were going to be enlightenment people. They were going to be very reasonable. Uh, the idea of following God emotionally was not in the cards. It was not something they looked like they were going to do then all of a sudden the great awakening happens and just completely takes america down a different path than the rest of the world you know that but before it happened they were making fun of christians and mocking them and doing all the very things that all the other governments of europe and all the other people were doing they were no different than them and yet suddenly people are crying out in services and i I always think that we kind of skip over this a little bit but imagine you are in a church service the pastor is preaching and someone in the pew next to you is screaming, stop, stop, I can't, I can't handle this. You're, you're 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 speaking too much and they're sobbing. Have you ever experienced a service like that in your life? I have never been in a service where somebody did that. And imagine if you were, how would you feel sitting in the pew next to them? You might be tempted to think they're crazy, but what if they aren't? What if that is really just the power of God landing on them? And now this isn't just One person, but it's several people in the church that's happening to all at once. And they're having physical reactions. In fact, they're not only yelling for the pastor to stop, and they're not only sobbing completely, some of them are even just literally just passing out and falling to the floor and this was common and this didn't just happen at one your weird church down the street this happened at churches all over the place churches where people had said we will never follow God they had basically challenged Jonathan Edwards as in like you can't get our attention this was happening all over from different men and different groups what do we do right How do we, what do we in the modern era, especially people who've maybe never experienced this, what do we think of this? Some people hear all of this and their immediate reactions go, that's great. God was moving. I believe it happened. That's awesome. And I wish I could see something like that happen in my day. But I think a lot of us hear this and some people are going to hear that and they're going to go, I'm suspicious. Did it really happen like that? Is that even really the way it's supposed to be done? If you heard about people shouting, crying, and acting like I just described at a church down the street from you, Would you want to go? If they begged you, they said, you got to come. Oh, you wouldn't believe the emotional outburst. Would you be willing to go? Or would you be distrustful and say, I don't believe that. I don't think that's something good. I think a lot of us would be very skeptical. And yet that's what I think makes it so strange that Jonathan Edwards, this meticulous, methodical man was one of the big heads of this kind of movement.
2: Yeah, one of the great ways to judge how revival went is to give it some time and look at the converts and see if they're still walking with the Lord or not, right? The big issue with revivals or, or, yeah, kind of pop-up evangelizing like that is what do you do with converts that are made? You know, if there's no church for them to go to, if there's no way for them uh, to take root or no one to help disciple them after that fact— what what happens as you go through, and that was something Jonathan Edwards was very aware of. George Whitfield also at this time was was starting to preach and starting these revivals again. This is like 1740s-ish in there. And Jonathan Edwards talks about seeing a real change in these people's lives. You know, when uh, J- Whitfield, when J- George Whitfield would come through uh, an area and preach and leave these people left behind, the whole town has changed, right? Charity. Uh, is going way up. People are giving more to each other, taking care of each other. Talk of religious matters is is up, and you know th- that community amongst the believers there. Uh, there's noticeable difference there, and these individuals are discipling each other and preaching the gospel themselves. There's an evangelism that that they are then taking up the torch and going out and sharing the gospel with other people as well. So there's a very clear evidence of uh, a genuine change in these people's lives. And that's something that Edwards wants to see as as well in his own personal ministry. You don't want to see fruitless endeavors where people just go back to whatever they were doing. And Jonathan Edwards actually wrote a book to help Christians who were converted from these revivals, to help keep them walking with God and to examine themselves, you know, a personal checklist that they can use uh, in years to come. Even the pastors that were converted from this time period, Edwards said very few of them would end up falling back into a scandalous sin, as far as he knew. As far as he knew, it seemed like he had a pretty good rate of, of genuine believers that, that continued to walk
0: with the Lord after their conversions. Now you might say, well, Edwards was only protecting his legacy. Of course, he's going to tell you that everyone that came out of the revival did great. Uh, it is important to know that there were people that went too far in the Great Awakening, too. There was a gentleman named James Davenport. He would have these gigantic public fires at his revivals where they would take books and burn them. Uh, He would call every pastor in town basically a wolf in sheep clothing, and just he would do a huge show. It was very dramatic. And another man named Charles Chauncey would use Davenport as an example of religion gone too far. Davenport, this Chauncey fellow, he really liked faith to be private, um, not very showy, very little emotion, very subdued. Uh, turned out when he died, he had a gigantic book of unpublished thoughts that would be basically him explaining that he was a universalist. And so a lot of Chauncey's uh, criticisms might have come from the fact that he wasn't actually a Christian anyway, and he was just saying those things to try to get the Christians to calm down because he was moving, trying to move the uh, pendulum over towards universalism. Yeah, people may still have their doubts. If you're listening, you may go, but can big crowds really be saved by men like George Whitfield? Can people uh, be, you know, preached hell and heaven very emotionally and very passionately like Jonathan Edwards did? And will that really reach them or will that just make them scared? And I would say, look at the evidence, not only Jonathan Edwards' evidence, but look at what happened in that era. We have nine Christian schools that were launched from this movement, including Princeton, all of which were very firm for a very long time. David Brainerd was converted, then went on to be one of the most famous missionaries of that century. And you can check out Elisa's show, Martyrs Missionaries, to hear more about how amazing his work is. And the entire course of the colonies, which have been straying into enlightenment, going into atheism, changed from that point on. The Revolutionary War, the ideas of democracy, and pretty much everything that follows in American history is completely shaped and moved by the stuff that happened in the Great Awakening because the people really did change course. And, you know, people argue today whether America is a Christian nation or not. But nobody was having that argument in the very early 1700s because America was moving towards a truly secular nation before the Great Awakening. This certainly happened, something changed the people there. And despite what we modern people may think about how emotional it is that they reacted to it the way they did, yet the fruit of it is there was a real change in the people that lasted, not just for the moments of those revivals, but for the people's entire lives.
1: Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The point I would like to focus on in this text today is that heaven is a world of love. The Apostle is speaking about the church. When it has reached perfection in heaven, when the partial is done away with and the perfect state of the church is reached, this is a time in which the Holy Spirit will be perfectly and abundantly given to the church, even more than it is now on earth. At that time, it will be so abundantly poured and so full of holy and divine love in the hearts of all the blessed inhabitants of that world. Currently in the church, the Holy Spirit has not yet perfected it. Now let us look at a few points on heaven and the magnificent love found there. First, let us think first of the cause and fountain of love that is in heaven. Let me remind you that the God of love himself dwells in heaven. Heaven is the palace of the High and Holy One whose name is love, and who is both the cause and source of all Holy love. God, we must remember, is everywhere. He fills both heaven and earth, but it is said in some ways to be more so in some places than others. He has said in His Word to dwell in the land of Israel above all other lands, and in Jerusalem above all other cities of that land, and in the temple above all other buildings in the city, and in the holy of holies above all other parts of the temple and on the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant, above all other places in the Holy of Holies. But heaven is his dwelling place, above all other places in the universe, and all those places in which he was said to dwell of old were but only types of this heavenly place. Heaven is a part of creation that God has built for this reason, to be the place of his glorious presence. This makes heaven a world of love. For God is the fountain of love, just as the sun is the fountain of light. And the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love, just as the sun placed in the middle of the cosmos fills the world with light. The apostle tells us that God is love. And so, seeing he is an infinite being, it makes sense that he is an infinite fountain of love. And since he is an unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. In heaven dwells the God from which every stream of holy love, yes, every drop that is or ever was, flows. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united as one in infinitely dear and indescribable and mutual and eternal love there dwells god the father who is the father of mercies and so the father of love he who so loved the world as to give his only begotten son to die for it there dwells christ the lamb of god the prince of peace and of love who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured out his soul to death for men he is the great mediator through whom all the divine love is expressed toward men, and by whom the fruits of that love has been purchased, and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all of God's people. There dwells Christ in both his natures, the human and the divine, sitting on the same throne with the Father. And there dwells the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of divine love, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, flows out and is breathed out in love, and by whose immediate influence all holy love is blessed in the hearts of all the saints on earth and in heaven. There, in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, is open without any obstacle to block access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines in beams of love. And there, this glorious fountain forever flows in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers grow faster until it has become an ocean of love. In this ocean of love, which ransomed souls, we may swim with the sweetest enjoyment. What else is heaven like? Well, let us imagine what things we will find there. First, there are only lovely things there. Nothing toxic or corrupt is seen. There is nothing there that is wicked or unholy. Nothing will enter it that defiles or works abomination, Revelation 21-27. And there is nothing that is broken with any natural or moral deformity. Everything is beautiful to see. Everything is pleasant and excellent in itself. The God that dwells and gloriously manifests himself there is infinitely lovely. All the people that belong to the blessed family of heaven are lovely. The father of the family is lovely, and so are all his children. The head of the body is lovely, and so are all the members. Among the angels there are none that are unlovely. For they are all holy. There are no evil angels infesting heaven as they do in this world. But they are kept forever far away by that great gulf which is between them and the glorious world of love. And among all the company of the saints, there are no unlovely persons. There are no false teachers or hypocrites there. No one that pretends to believe and yet is actually an unbeliever and hateful as is often the case in this world. And not only will all objects in heaven be lovely, but they will be perfectly lovely. There are many things in this world that in general are lovely, but they are not yet perfectly free from problems. There are even spots on the sun. Similarly, there are many men that are kind and worthy to be loved, but despite that have some things about them which are not good. Often there is in good men some problem of attitude or character that blocks the excellence of what otherwise would seem to be a perfect man. And even the very best of men are, on earth, imperfect. But it is not so in heaven. Everyone will be perfectly pure and perfectly lovely in heaven. That blessed world will be perfectly bright without any darkness, perfectly clear without any clouds. No string will vibrate out of tune to cause any discord in the harmony of the music of heaven, and no note will be misplayed to break the anthems of saints and angels. Wherever the inhabitants of that blessed world turn their eyes, they will see nothing but dignity, beauty, and glory. The most stately cities on earth, however magnificent their buildings, still have their foundations in the dust. But the very streets of this heavenly city are pure gold, and its gates are pearls, and these are just faint shadows of the purity and perfection of those that live there. In heaven, they will find the things that appeared most lovely to them while they dwelt on earth. All the truly great and good, all the pure and holy and excellent things from this world are constantly pointing us toward heaven. Every gem, which death rudely tears away from us here, is a glorious jewel shining forever there. Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransomed spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. There we will find the infant that we have lost here below, but through grace they are found above. There the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend, and all who we fellowship with but were interrupted by death before will be restarted again in the upper sanctuary. And this time, it will never end. There we will have company with, with the patriarchs and the fathers and the saints of the Old and New Testaments, all those that the world was not worthy of. And there, above all, we will enjoy and dwell with God the Father, whom we have loved with all our hearts on earth, and with Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, who has always been to us the chief among ten thousands and altogether lovely, and with the Holy Ghost, our sanctifier and guide and comforter, and we will be filled with the fullness of the Godhead forever. Now, Most of the love that there is in this world is of an unholy nature. But the love that has a place in heaven is not carnal, but spiritual. It does not proceed from selfish motives. It is not directed to evil and vile purposes and goals. As opposed to all this, it is a pure flame which is directed by holy motives. The saints in heaven love God for his own sake. And they love each other for God's sake and the image of God that is upon them. All their love is pure and holy. Something else to consider of this heavenly love is the quality of it. It is perfect. The love that dwells in the heart of God is perfect. Perfect with an absolutely infinite and divine perfection. The love of angels and saints to God and Christ is altogether perfect. So it is said in the text that when that which is perfect comes, that which is in part will be done away. Their love will be without any remains of any sinful desire, having no pride or selfishness to interrupt it or block its work. Their hearts will be full of love. That which was in the heart on earth as but a grain of mustard seed will grow as a great tree in heaven. The soul that in this world only had a little spark of divine love in it in heaven will become a bright and wonderful flame like the sun in its fullest brightness. In heaven there will be no remaining hatred or distaste or coldness or deadness of heart towards God and Christ. Not even the least remainder of any feeling of envy will exist to be acted toward angels or other beings who are superior in glory. Nor will there be thoughts like contempt or distaste of those who are weak. Those that have a lower place in glory than others suffer no lack of their own happiness by seeing others above them in glory. Everyone has not only a sincere, but a perfect goodwill to others. There is an inconceivably pure, sweet, and passionate love between the saints in glory. And where there is perfect satisfaction, there can be no reason for envy. And there will be no temptation for any to envy those that are above them in glory on account of the other being lifted up with pride, because there will be no pride in heaven. This will be the sweet and perfect harmony among the heavenly saints, and the perfect love reigning in every heart toward every other, without limit or cast or interruption. And no envy or malice or revenge or contempt or selfishness will ever enter there, but all such feelings will be kept as far away as sin is from holiness. The distance from sinful thoughts to heaven is the same as hell is from heaven. Now, let us consider our circumstances in heaven. For love in heaven is always mutual. It is always met with a right return. Love seeks a return of love back. And just in proportion as any person is loved, in the same proportion is his love desired and prized. And in heaven, this desire of love, or this fondness for being love, will never fail to be satisfied. No inhabitants of that blessed world will ever be grieved with the thought that they are being slighted by those that they love, or that their love is not fully and fondly returned. As the saints will love God with an unconceivable passion of heart, and to the best of their ability, so they will know that He has loved them from all eternity, and still loves them, and will continue to love them forever. And God will then gloriously manifest himself to them, and they will know that all that happiness and glory which they are possessed by are the fruits of his love. And they will know that he has loved them with a faithful, yes, even with a dying love. They will then be more sensible than they are now at what great love it manifested in Christ that he should lay down his life for them. And then Christ will open the view of the great fountain of love in his heart for them far beyond all that they ever saw before. Christ declared, I love them that love me. And the sight of Christ's love will fill them with joy and admiration and more love for him. The love of the saints to each other will always be mutual. That we cannot expect that everyone will, in all respects, be equally beloved. Some of the saints are more beloved by God than others, even on earth. The angel told Daniel that he was a man greatly beloved, chapter 9, verse 23. And Luke is called the beloved physician, Colossians 4 14. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John 20, verse 2. And so it is likely that those who have been most eminent in faithfulness and holiness, and that are highest in glory, are most beloved by Christ in heaven. The joy of heavenly love will never be interrupted or dimmed by jealousy, though. Heavenly lovers will have no doubt of their love for each other. They will have no fear that the declarations and professions of love are false. But we will be perfectly satisfied with the sincerity and the strength of each other's affection as though there were a window in every chest, so that everything in the heart could be seen. There will be no such thing as flattery or hypocrisy in heaven, but perfect sincerity will reign through all and in all. It will not be as it is in this world, where comparatively few things are what they seem to be, and where professions are often made lightly and without meaning. But there... Every expression of love will come from the bottom of the heart, and all that is professed will be really and truly felt. The saints will know that God loves them in heaven, and they will never doubt the greatness of his love, and they will have no doubt of the love of all their fellow inhabitants in heaven. And they will not be afraid of any change in each other's love. They will have No suspicion that the love which others have felt toward them is lessening, or in any degree withdrawing from themselves for the sake of some rival. The saints will have no fear that the love of God will ever lessen toward them. In the current world, the saints find much to keep them from showing love. On earth, we carry about a heavy physical body, a a pile of dirt, a mass of flesh and blood that is not fit to be the body of a soul inflamed with the high passions of divine love. Our body is a great clog and hindrance to the spirit so that we cannot express our love to God as we would and cannot be so active and lively in it as we desire. Often we imagine we would fly, but we are held down with a dead weight upon our wings. Imagine we would be so active and climb up to heaven like a flame of fire, but find ourselves soon held and chained down so that we cannot do as our love for Christ inclines us to do. Love calls us to explode into praise for God, but our tongues are not obedient. We lack words to express the zeal of our souls and cannot order our speech because of the darkness in our minds. And often lack of words, we're forced to content ourselves with groanings that cannot be uttered. Have you ever felt this love in your heart, but you couldn't express it? But in heaven there will be no problems like this. There they will have no slowness and clumsiness and no corruption of heart to war against divine love. There no earthly body will diminish with its worldly weights the heavenly flame. The saints in heaven will have no difficulty in expressing all their love. Their souls, being on fire with holy love, will not be like a fire pent up, but like a flame suddenly uncovered and exploding like a firework. Their spirits, now winged with love, will have no more weight upon them to stop them from flying. There will be no lack of strength or energy, nor lack of words to praise the object of their affection. Nothing will stop them from communing with God praising and serving Him just as their love desires them to do. Love naturally desires to express itself, and in heaven the love of the saints will be at full liberty to express itself as it desires, whether it is towards God or to created beings. Also, in heaven love will be expressed with perfect clarity and wisdom. Many in this world that are sincere in their hearts, yet have no mind to guide them in the proper way of expressing it. Their intentions and so their speeches are good, but the actions and speeches have an awkwardness that greatly hides the loveliness of grace in the eyes of others. But in heaven, the goodness and excellence of their love will not be covered by anything. There will be no indecent or unwise, or inappropriate speeches or actions. No foolish and sentimental over-fondness, no needless, grandiose eloquence, no debased or sinful passions, and no such thing as desires clouding or hurting reason and thinking, or going before or against it. But wisdom and clarity will be as perfect in the saints as love is. In heaven, there will be nothing outward to keep its inhabitants at a distance from each other. There will be no wall of separation in heaven to keep the saints apart. Distances will no longer keep them from each other, for they will all be together as one family in their heavenly Father's house. There will be no disunity through difference of temper or manners or circumstances or from controversial opinions or interests. Or feelings or alliances. All will be united in the same interests, and all alike allied to the same Savior, and all employed in the same business, serving and glorifying the same God. In heaven, they will enjoy each other's love in perfect and uninterrupted wealth. What often crushes the pleasure and sweetness of worldly pleasure is that though they live in love, yet they live in poverty. Or they run into great difficulties and sore troubles, where they are grieved for themselves and for each other. For, though in such cases love and friendship in some respects lightens the burden to be carried, yet in other ways they add to its weight. Because those that love each other become, by their very love, sharers in each other's afflictions, and then each has not only his own trials to bear, but also those of his afflicted friends. But there will be no challenges in heaven. Instead, they will enjoy one another's love in the greatest prosperity, inheriting all things, sitting on thrones, all wearing the crowns of life and being made kings and priests to God forever. Christ and his disciples, while on earth, were often together in affliction and trial. And they kept going and showed the strongest love and friendship to each other under terrible sufferings. And now, in heaven... They enjoy each other's love in immortal glory. Both Christ and his saints were aware of sorrow and grief while in this world. Christ had the greatest share, being a man of sorrows. But in heaven they will sit together in heavenly places where sorrow and grief will never be known. So that as they love one another, they not only have their own, but each other's prosperity to rejoice in. And are by love, made partakers of each other's blessedness and glory. This is the love of every saint to every other saint, that it makes the glory which he sees other saints enjoy, as it were, his own. He rejoices that they enjoy such glory, that it is in some respects to him as if he himself enjoyed it in his own personal experience. Heaven itself, the place is a garden of pleasures, a heavenly paradise built in all respects for a home of heavenly love. None will dislike socializing or isolate from each other there. The petty distinctions of this world do not draw lines in the society of heaven. All meet in the equality of holiness and holy love. All things in heaven also show the beauty and loveliness of God and Christ. The very light that shines in and fills that world is the light of love, for it is the shining of the glory of the Lamb of God. Revelation 21.23 says, The city had no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light of it. The glory that is around him that reigns in heaven is so radiant and sweet, that it is compared in Revelation to a rainbow around the throne, in sight like an emerald. And it is the rainbow that is so often used in the Old Testament as the fit token of God's love and grace manifested in his covenant. The light of the new Jerusalem, which is the light of God's glory, is said to be clear as crystal. And its beauty will continue since there is no night there, but only an endless and glorious day. This suggests once more that the inhabitants of heaven will know that they will forever be continued in the perfect enjoyment of each other's love, that they will know that God and Christ will forever be with them as their God and portion, and that His love will be continued forever, and that all their beloved fellow saints will forever live with them in glory and will forever keep up the same love in their hearts, which they now have. They will be in no fear of any end to this happiness, or of any decline from its fullness and blessedness, or that they will ever be tired of experiencing it, or bored with its enjoyments, or that the beloved object will ever grow old or disagreeable to them, so that their love will at last die away. All in heaven will flourish in immortal youth and freshness, Age will not diminish anyone's beauty or vigor, and their love will live in everyone's heart as a living spring, perpetually springing up in the soul, or as a flame that never dies away. And the holy pleasure of this love will be as a river that is flowing forever clear and full and forever growing. The heavenly paradise of love will always be kept as in a perpetual spring without autumn or winter where no frosts corrupt or leaves decay and fall, but where every plant will be in perpetual freshness and bloom and fragrance and beauty always springing up and always blossoming and always bearing fruit. The leaf of the righteous will not wither, Psalm 1.3, and in the middle of the streets of heaven and on either side of the river grows the tree of life which bears 12 type of fruits and yields her fruit in each month. Revelation 22, verse 2. Everything in the heavenly world will contribute to the joy of the saints, and every joy in heaven will be eternal. No night will settle down with its darkness upon the brightness of the everlasting day. This is the setting of heaven where love is fully expressed. Now, let us look at the kind of effect such a place will have. There are so many blessed effects of this fruit of heaven, but we will focus on just two. The first is the excellent and perfect behavior of all the inhabitants of heaven toward God and each other. Life in heaven will be without the least sinful failure or error. None will ever come short or turn aside from the way of holiness in the least degree. Every part of their behavior will be holy and divine in intention, form, spirit, and action. We do not know how the saints in heaven will be employed. But in general, we know that their business is in praising and serving God. The other fruit of love, as exercised in such a setting, is the perfect tranquility and joy in heaven. Charity or Holy and humble Christian love is a principle of wonderful power to give indescribable quietness and tranquility to the soul and makes all divinely calm and sweet and happy. In that soul, where divine love reigns and is in lively exercise, nothing can cause a storm or even gather together threatening clouds, selfishness, envy, Revenge, jealousy, and warring passions keep life on earth in a constant earthquake. And life here is a scene of confusion and riot where no quiet rest is to be enjoyed except by renouncing this world and looking to another. But, oh, what rest is there in that world which the God of peace and love fills with his own gracious presence, one in which the Lamb of God lives, and rains filling it with the brightest and sweetest beams of his love where there is nothing to disturb or offend and no being or object to be seen that is not surrounded with perfect goodness and sweetness where the saints will find and enjoy all that they love and be perfectly satisfied where there is no enemy and no division but perfect love in every heart and to every being where there is perfect harmony among all the inhabitants, no one envying, but everyone rejoicing in the happiness of every other, where their love is humble and holy and perfectly Christian, without the least carnality or impurity, where love is always mutual and reciprocated to the fullest, where there is no hypocrisy or flattery, but perfect simplicity and sincerity, where there is no treachery or unfaithfulness, or inconsistency, or jealousy in any form, where there is no clog in the expressions of love, no awkwardness or indecency in expressing it, and no influence of sin or foolishness in any word or deed, where there is no separation or distance, and no misunderstanding of strangers, but full knowledge and perfect intimacy in all, where there is no division through different opinions or interests, but where all in that glorious and loving society will be most nearly and divinely related and all will enjoy each other in perfect prosperity and riches and honor without any sickness or grief or persecution or sorrow or any enemy to molest them or any busybody to create jealousy or misunderstanding or sink the perfect and holy and blessed peace that reigns in heaven. And all this in the garden of God. In the paradise of love, where everything is filled with love, and everything works to promote it and kindle it and keep up its flame, and nothing ever interrupts it, but everything has been fit together by an all-wise God for its full enjoyment under the greatest advantages forever. And all, too, where the beauty of the beloved objects will never fade, and love will never grow weary nor decay, but the soul will more and more rejoice In love forever. Ah, What tranquility there will be in this world we dream of. And who can speak the fullness and blessedness of this peace? How calm is this? How sweet and holy and joyous. What a refuge of rest to go to. After having passed through the storms and hurricanes of this world... What a promised land of rest to come to, after going through this dry and howling wilderness so full of snares and pitfalls and poisonous serpents where no rest could be found. (laughs) And, oh, what joy will there be, springing up in the hearts of the saints after they have passed through their wearisome pilgrimage to be brought to such a paradise as this, Every saint in heaven is a flower in that garden of God, and holy love is the fragrance and the sweet smell that they all spread as they fill the porch of that paradise above. Every soul there is as a note in a concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and all together blend in the most rapturous sound in praising God and the Lamb forever. Now, let us put together an application for us still on earth. If heaven is the kind of world just described, then we may see a reason why contention and infighting would harm our evidence of being prepared for it. Experience tells us that this is the effect of fighting. When principles of division win among God's people, and they become engaged in strife, whether public or private, their former evidence for heaven seems to become dimmer, or even dies away. And their spiritual state slips into darkness, and they do not find that comfortable and satisfying hope that they used to enjoy. And so, when converted persons get into conflicts in their families, the consequence commonly, if not universally, is that they live without much of a comfortable sense of heavenly things, or any lively hope of heaven. They do not enjoy much of that spiritual calm and sweetness that those who do who live in love and peace. They have not that help from God, and that communion with Him, and that near intercourse with heaven in prayer that others have. The apostle seems to speak of contention in families as having this influence. His language is in First Peter three verse seven. Likewise, you husbands dwell with them, your family, according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together in the grace of life, that your prayers are not hindered. His language is in First Peter three seven. Likewise, you husbands dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together in the grace of life, that your prayers are not hindered. Here he shows that discord in families tends to hinder Christians in their prayers. Why is it that contention has this effect of hindering spiritual actions, and of destroying the sweet hope of that which is heavenly? Heaven is a world of love, and so it makes sense that when we have the least amount of love, and instead a divisive spirit, then we have the least of heaven. The second application, the happiest are going to heaven. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right of the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Certainly some of these blessed are listening now, and oh, surely they are the blessed of the earth, and the fullness of their blessedness no language can describe. But here some may be ready to say, Without a doubt, they are happy people that have a home in such a blessed world, but who are these people? How will they be known, and how may they be distinguished? In answer, I would mention three things that belong to their character. First, they are those that have the desire and the same love that reigns in heaven in their own hearts. This love is with them in this world, in the work of regeneration. They are not those who have only earthly desires in their hearts, the same as they had by their first birth, for that which is of born of the flesh is flesh. But they are those who have experienced the new birth, or those who have been born of the Spirit. A glorious work of the Spirit of God has been done in their hearts, renewing them by bringing down from heaven some of the light and some of the holy pure flame that is in that world of love. And it was given to them. Their hearts are a soil in which this heavenly seed has been sown and in which it grows. And so they are changed. The love of the world is destroyed and the love of God planted. Their hearts are drawn to God and Christ. And for their sakes, it flows out to the saints in humble and spiritual love. Second, they are those Who have freely chosen the happiness that flows from the work and enjoyment of such love as is in heaven. It is above all other types of happiness. They see and understand that it is the best good. They do not merely believe it is so from rational arguments that may be offered for it, but they know it is so from what little they have tasted of it. Love to God, and love to Christ, and love to saints for God and Christ's sake, and the enjoyment of the fruits of God's love in holy communion with God and Christ and with holy persons, this is what they desire most. This is proof of their renewed nature that heavenly happiness suits their appetites and wishes above all things. And not only above all things that they have, but above all that they can conceive possible that they could have. Those of the world do not know anything like this third they are those who are in heart and life in thought and practice struggling after holiness holy love makes them long for holiness it is a principle that thirsts after growth Hol- holiness is not perfect here is it <clears throat> it is in a state of infancy in this world, and it desires growth. It has much to struggle with. In the heart, holiness in this world is at war with many enemy worldviews and influences, and it must struggle after greater unity, more liberty, and better fruit. The great war and struggle of the new man is for holiness. His heart Struggles after it, for he has an interest in heaven, and therefore he struggles with sin that would keep him from it. He is full of passionate desires and longings and wars to be holy, and his hands struggle as well as his heart. He strives in his work. His life is a life of sincere and earnest attempts to be universally and increasingly holy. He feels that he's not holy enough. In fact, he feels far from it. And he desires to be nearer perfection and more like those who are in heaven. And this is one reason why he longs to be in heaven, that he may be perfectly holy. And the great motivation which leads him to struggle and war for holiness is love. It's not only fear, but it is to love God and to love Christ and to love holiness. Love is a holy fire within him, and like any other flame which is in a degree pent up, it struggles for freedom. Now what has been said here may awaken and alarm those who have not repented, for it reminds them of their misery. They have no place in this world of love. You have been listening to this talk on heaven, but imagine if none of this belongs to you. When you hear of such things, you hear of a place that does not interest or excite you. No such person as you, a wicked hater of God and Christ, will ever enter there. It may be said to you, as Peter said to Simon, Acts 8.21, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. And as Nehemiah said to Sanballat and his associates in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, you have no portion or right nor memorial in Jerusalem. If such a soul as yours should be let into heaven, how awful it would be to those blessed spirits whose souls are a flame of love, and how it would ruin that loving and blessed place and put everything into confusion. It would make heaven no longer heaven if such lost souls should be admitted there. It would change it from a world of love to a place of hatred and pride and envy and malice and revenge, just as this world is. But this will never be. And the only alternative is that those like you will be shut out with dogs and sorcerers and prostitutes and murderers and idolaters and whoever lusts and lies, says the scripture. That is with all that is vile and unclean and unholy. I hope this subject of heaven alarms and wakes up the unrepentant. Secondly, we hope to awaken them not just by telling them of a heaven they will miss, but of the dangers of hell. There are three worlds. One is this one, a temporary world. A world in which good and evil are so mixed together as to be your proof that this world will not continue forever. Another is heaven. A world of love without any hatred. And the other is hell. A world of hatred where there is no love which is the world to which all of you who are in a Christless state belong. This last is the world where God displays his displeasure and wrath, just as in heaven he manifests his love. Everything in hell is hateful. There is not one solitary object there that is not odious and horrible. There is no person or thing to be seen there that is good or lovely. Nothing that is pure or holy or pleasant, but everything terrible. There are no beings there but devils and damned spirits that are like them. Hell is a vast den of poisonous hissing serpents. That old serpent who is the devil and Satan, and with him all his hateful brood. In that dark world there are none but those whom God hates with a perfect and everlasting hatred. He exercises no love and extends no mercy to anyone there. He pours out upon them horrors without grace. All things in the wide universe that are hateful will be gathered together in hell so that the universe which God has made may be cleansed of its filthiness. It is a world prepared on purpose for the display of God's wrath. He has made hell for this and he has no other use for it but there to testify forever his hatred of sin and sinners where there is no token of love or mercy. There is nothing there but which shows the divine wrath. Every object shows wrath. It is a world overflowing with a flood of wrath. It is a flood of liquid fire and is called a lake of fire and brimstone and the second death. There are none in hell but those who have been haters of God, and there they will continue to hate him forever. No love to God will ever be felt in hell. Everyone there perfectly hates him, and so will continue to hate him, and without any restraint will express their hatred to him, blaspheming and raging against him while they gnaw their tongues for pain. And though they all join together in their hatred and opposition to God, yet there's no friendliness amongst themselves. They agree in nothing but hatred. They hate God and they hate Christ and angels and saints in heaven. And not only so, but they hate each other. The devils in hell will hate damned souls. They hated them while they were in this world. And it was that hatred that they worked tirelessly to draw temptations to bring their ruin. They thirsted for the blood of their souls because they hated them. And they will have no love or pity towards each other. But will be like devils one to each other. And will forever torment each other. In hell they will feel unrestrained pride, malice, envy, revenge, contention in all its fury and without end, never knowing peace. The miserable inhabitants will bite and devour one another as well as be enemies of God and Christ and holy beings, those who in their wickedness on earth were companions together. And had a sort of carnal friendship together will have no fellowship there. If on earth they promoted each other's sins, so now in hell they will promote each other's punishment. And there, their hatred and envy and all evil passions will be a torment to themselves. God and Christ, whom they will hate most, will be infinitely above their reach. And they will torment themselves by their fruitless envy of the saints and the angels in heaven. Whom they cannot come near or, or injure. And they will have no pity from them or from anyone. For hell is looked on only with hatred and with no pity or compassion. And this is how they will be left to spend their eternity together. Think about this if you are not in christ and have never been born again think about the danger you are in for this is the world to which you are condemned and the world that every day and hour you are in danger of calling your new home the world to which if you do not repent you will soon live in instead of going to that blessed world of love that you've just heard about Think about it. Imagine that it will end up this way with you. These things are not cleverly devised myths, but the great and dreadful realities of God's word and things that in a little while you will know with everlasting certainty are true. How do you possibly ever sleep when this could be your fate? How do you go carelessly about day to day and neglect your precious immortal soul? Seriously, consider these things. Be smart for your own sake before it's too late. Before your foot slips on a dark path and you fall into the world of wrath and hatred where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, flee to the stronghold while you are able. Before the door of hope is closed and the agonies of the second death begin their work and your eternal doom is sealed Let the idea of what has been said of heaven stir up all of us to earnestly seek it. If heaven is such a blessed world, then let it be our chosen country and inheritance. It is not impossible that this glorious world may be ours. It's offered to us. Though it is such an excellent and blessed country, yet God stands ready to give it to us if it is the country that we desire God gives us our choice. We may have our inheritance whenever we choose and may obtain heaven if we will but seek it by patient continuance in well-doing. Truly, this world is an evil world. It is in vain for us to expect that it will be anything other than a world of sin. And that the times may improve, yet evil will always be more or less found in the world so long as it stands who then would focus on happiness here what man acting wisely would worry himself about laying treasure in such a world as this especially if by having our portion here we must then have our eternal portion in hell you that are poor And think yourself despised by your neighbors and little cared for among men. Do not worry about your wealth. Do not care for the friendship of the world, but seek heaven where there's no such thing as hate. And where none are despised, but all are highly esteemed and honored and dearly beloved by all. You think that you have been met with many abuses and much ill treatment for others? Don't care about it. Do not hate them for it, but set your heart on heaven that world of love and press toward that better country. Now, to instruct you on how to seek heaven. First, do not let your heart go after the things of this world. The possession of earthly things will not satisfy your soul. This is the reverse of seeking heaven. It goes against the path that leads to the world of love. If you would seek heaven... Your affections must be taken away from the pleasures of the world. You must destroy the desires of vanity and become poor in spirit and lowly in heart. Second, you must, in your devotions and holy work, be engaged in conversations with heavenly persons, things, and enjoyments. You cannot constantly be seeking heaven without having your thoughts there. Turn the stream of your thoughts and affections towards that world of love and towards the God of love that dwells there and toward the saints and angels that are at Christ's right hand. Let your thoughts also be on the objects and enjoyments of the world of love. Speak with God and Christ in prayer and think often of all that is in heaven, of the friends who are waiting there for you and the worship there and of all that will make up the blessedness of that world of love. Let your conversation be in heaven. Third, be ready to pass through all difficulties on the way to heaven. The path to heaven is a climb filled with difficulties and obstacles. That glorious city of light and love is, as it were, on the top of a high hill or a mountain. And there's no way to get to it but to go upward with tiring steps. But though the ascent is difficult and the way full of trials, still it is worth your while to meet them all for the sake of coming and dwelling in such a glorious city at last. Be willing to undergo the labor and meet the toil and overcome the difficulty. What will any of the trials matter in comparison to that sweet rest that is your journey's end? Be willing to fight the natural inclination of flesh and blood, which is downward, and press onward and upward to the prize. At every step, it will be easier and easier to climb. And the higher your ascent, the more you will be cheered by the closer view of that heavenly city. Fourth, In all your ways, let your eye be fixed on Jesus. He who has gone to heaven as your forerunner, look at him. Behold his glory in heaven, that a sight of him may stir you up to earnestly desire to be there. Look to him in his example. Consider how by patient perseverance and well-doing, by patient endurance of great suffering, he went before you. To heaven, Look to Him as your mediator and trust the atonement which He has made entering into the holiest of all in the upper temple. Look to Him as your intercessor who forever pleads for you before the throne of God. Look to Him as your strength that by His Spirit He may enable you to press on And to overcome every difficulty of the way. Trust in his promises of heaven to those that love and follow him. Which he has confirmed by entering into heaven as the head and representative and savior of his people. And fifth. If you are on the path to the world of love. See that you live a life of love of love to god and love to men all of us hope to have a part in the world of love coming soon and so we should cherish the spirit of love and live a life of holy love here on earth and your heart will be opened by holy love to god and by the spirit of peace and love to all men to a sense of the excellence and sweetness of all that is to be found in heaven. Happy, (laughs) triple happy are those who will be found faithful to the end and then will be welcomed to the joy of their Lord. There they will never hunger nor thirst anymore, neither will the sun burn on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne, will feed them, lead them to living fountains of water. God will wipe away all tears from their eyes.
0: This sermon on heaven, I think, easily rivals anything that um, Edwards says about hell. Now, to be fair, in this sermon about heaven, he also does have a few thoughts on hell that are just as terrifying as any of his thoughts are. But I think what's really important about Jonathan Edwards, what I think is really important about men like him that preach these tough sermons to listen to, is that they believe what they say. It's not that Jonathan Edwards is saying anything about heaven or hell that we haven't all thought before. It's that it's rare for somebody to just look at the Word of God, say the thoughts about heaven, say the thoughts about hell that we all think look like they're there, and just say them to you point blank as they are, right? Everything he describes about heaven is what we see in the Bible, that the Word of God is saying heaven is. And yet it's very encouraging to have someone just lay it out for you and say, what you think you're seeing, this is true. We need more people who believe the word of God and preach like they believe the words they're speaking of, especially on important subjects like death, uh, hell, heaven, judgment, these things that God speaks about greatly and yet are so often missing in today's world.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Pastor Ed Backel. He is a Washington State native. He has taught for 30 plus years in churches in Oregon, Washington, and Nebraska. He's currently in Warden, Washington. He's been serving with Warden Community Church since May of 2010. We always love having
0: Ed uh, preach the sermons he does a great job with them pastor ed back L is one of the great uh, su- successful secrets of this show between he did a recent <laughs> episode on john calvin he did an episode on john wesley where he literally preached uh, like i think he was outside or like it was like as if you were at one of the revivals i mean it was really cool he has done so many christmas evans so many great episodes if you do nothing else but just go back through revive thoughts catalog and listen to ed back L sermons you will have some really great sermons to listen to and some really passionate preaching. Uh, So we really appreciate him for doing that. Also, if you enjoyed this episode on Jonathan Edwards and our thoughts on the Great Awakening, the revival there, and you enjoyed this sermon on heaven, we highly encourage you to share this episode. Tell someone else, uh, even if you don't tell them about all the things that revive thoughts, even if you don't think they would like anything else, encourage them to listen to this episode and this sermon. I think it can be really encouraging. I think that this sermon is the kind of sermon that will get people's attention and make them hopefully live with more sight towards heaven and more awareness of the reality of hell and i really do think it will be encouraging for the walk of god of many to have jonathan edwards just lay out that sober reality of where we're all going to head after we die and so i hope you will i hope you will share that with somebody send it to a friend tell a family member about it just say hey check this out this might be something you need to hear right now and hopefully it'll help you grow closer to god This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Fox.